Happy Saturday, and thank you for joining me today. Okay, his name was Walter Hickel. Um, as a kid, he was called Wally. Um, as the eldest out of 10 children, he was born on August 18, 1919, to Robert and Emma Hickel in Claflin, Kansas. His parents were tenant farmers of German descent, and after he finished high school, he decided that he was going to move west to California. As a young man, he worked as a carpenter, but then he moved again. This time it was to Alaska. Legend has it he arrived in Anchorage, Alaska, with only 37 cents in his pocket. But then there was a complete transformation, because while Wally was working as a carpenter, a bartender, and an aircraft inspector, those three jobs were enough for him to purchase and complete a half-finished house in Anchorage. He eventually sold that house and built two more houses and sold those as well, so this eventually became a gig for him because he went on to build several hundred homes and became a home builder, also started a motel chain. He also created the Northern Lights Shopping Center in Anchorage, which included Alaska's first escalator. Then in 1941, he married Janice Cannon. Unfortunately, she would die two years later. They went on uh, Janice Cannon and Walter Hickel, had one child named Theodore. And in 1945, Walter Hickel married again. Uh, Wally Hickel played a, big role, uh, played a big role in lobbying for Alaska to become a state than it ultimately did in 1959. By 1966, he was the governor of that state. He was the governor of Alaska and a self-made millionaire. And as the governor, he encouraged oil discovery in Prudhoe Bay. Dennis Hevesy writes at the New York Times, quote, At one point, ordering a highway crew to plow a road from Fairbanks in central Alaska to the northern slope so that equipment could be trucked in. When the ice melted, however, it became a mud-filled trench that critics labeled the Hickel Highway, end quote. I'm sure that wasn't a fun nickname. Uh, but in 1968, uh, so this was two years in office as governor, Mr. Hickel had energetically been campaigning for, for one of the Republican presidential candidates that year. He had been campaigning for a guy named Richard Nixon. And then Richard Nixon won the presidential election and was sworn in on January 20th, 1969. And when he was nominating cabinet officials and looking for someone to lead the Department of Interior, he chose Wally Hickel the guy who had enthusiastically campaigned for him and became, and essentially now became his Secretary of State. But later into his administration, Nixon was really starting to regret ever picking Wally Hickel in the first place. Their relationship progressively got worse, especially when the Kent State shooting transpired. Um, in this video, you will hear Vice President Spiro Agnew as sort of the Nixon administration's defense for this event, and also you will hear a, the father of a victim. A million and a half students demonstrated at colleges across the country. One of those demonstrations would be long remembered, Kent State University in Ohio. It began with a fire on May 2nd. The fire at the Army ROTC building was spotted minutes after several hundred students rallied on the commons, chanting anti-war slogans and tossing cherry bombs. Other students poured from the dormitories and began smashing the building with rocks. In response to the violence, Governor Rhodes called in the National Guard. After two days of rioting over ROTC and Cambodia, the university had banned rallies and the National Guard stood by to enforce the ban. Leave this area immediately. Leave this area immediately. The warning was issued several times, but the students were angry and they stood defiant. Guardsmen were given the order to move out, but first the students were peppered with tear gas fired from rifle-like launchers. 
In moments, clouds of tear gas covered the center of the campus. The students fell back over a hill, answering the guardsmen with rocks. Suddenly, from over the hill, there was rifle fire. Four students, two of them females, were shot to death. At least another dozen were wounded. And everybody said they had blanks, but some of them had real bullets. They just looked like they fired up in the air, and I looked around, there's guys laying dead. My best friend was murdered by the, by the uh, National they, Guard. They were not ordered to fire. Each soldier fired when he thought that his life was in danger. The Nixon administration was quick to come to the defense of the National Guard. Had the rocks not been thrown, there would have been no chance of the killing. She felt that war in Cambodia was wrong. Is this descent a crime? Is this a reason for killing her? Have we come to such a state in this country that a young girl has to be shot because she disagrees deeply with the actions of her government? The killings at Kent State seemed to mark a climax for the anti-war movement. The war had come home. The government had fired on its own children. Once again, that was a CBS News report at the time about the Kent State shooting. Um, shortly after it transpired, Wally Hickel sent a letter to President Richard Nixon in opposition to the Vietnam War. And the letter was soon leaked to the press before Nixon actually received it. This is in part what the letter said, quote, I believe this administration finds itself today embracing a philosophy which appears to lack appropriate concern for the great mass of Americans, our young people. Regardless of how I or any American might feel individually, we have an obligation might feel individually, excuse me, we have an obligation as leaders to communicate with our youth and listen to their ideas and problems. End quote. Nixon took that letter as offensive, and Wally Hickel was soon fired. Wally Hickel was soon fired, uh, but he did return to Alaska, and he became governor again. But around the time that Nixon was firing Wally Hickel for being opposed, being so opposed to the Vietnam War, and writing that reportedly offensive letter, uh, Nixon was doing lots of work and urging action on the environment. In 1970, President Richard Nixon has signed the National Environmental Policy Act, which created the president which created the Presidential Council on the Environment, and also laid the legislative framework for environmental protections. He also created the EPA and signed the Clean Air Legislation Act, excuse me, also signed the Clean Air Extinction Act of 1970 into law. So yes, Nixon was doing a lot in regard to the environment, and this work was relevant to, to the agency where Wally Hickel had just been fired. And in 1970, Richard Nixon had been involved in creating a new federal agency, an agency called NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And parts of the components of that federal agency were not, were not new things. Um, NOAA actually dates back to 1807 when President Thomas Jefferson created the U.S. Coast, Coast Survey. So Nixon would create NOAA and it would be a part of the Department of Interior, right? Because that is part of our government, which deals with which deals with like natural sciences, the land, the sea, and the air. So that was the clear, rational choice, and that's where you think it may go. I mean, that of course would be like the the rational choice, but sometimes people just maintain grudges, and because of Richard Nixon, because Richard Nixon hated Wally Hickel so much, 
he put Noah in the Department of Commerce. It made no sense at all. Not even now, and it, it, it still makes no sense. Uh, maybe the notion was that don't give Hickel anything new or awesome. But the history of the history of that was just odd. Um, I mean, commerce, really? If you're wondering what the genesis of this was, apparently it had something to do with President Nixon being unhappy with his interior secretary for criticizing him uh, about the Vietnam War. And so he decided not to put Noah uh, in uh, what would have been uh, a more sensible place. That was President Barack Obama in 2012 explaining to an audience the weird and sort of fascinating history of how NOAA became a part of the Commerce Department. Uh, that same year, President Obama himself tried to move NOAA to the Department of Interior, but ultimately failed. Um, and and NOAA, NOAA is still in the Department of Commerce to this day, and lots of weird and sort of unsettling things have taken place under its wing under the Trump administration. As you know, on January 20th, 2017, Donald Trump was sworn in as President of the United States. Donald Trump is, has essentially profound himself and has professed himself to be a climate change skeptic, which is based on the reporting we've been doing on this show. It's, it essentially does explain all, all of the other climate change skeptics that the Trump administration has installed in high-level government agencies like NOAA. Um, you may recall in September when I did an opening on this show about how climate change is an existential threat. Well, in that opening, I reported on who the Trump administration has just installed in the National, in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It was a guy named David Leggett, a climate change skeptic. Then in November, Trump fired Michael Cooperberg, who was the executive director of the U.S. Global Change Research Program. His agency was in charge. His agency was tasked of creating with creating the National Climate Assessment. And after they got Cooperberg out of there, they installed Ryan Maui. Also, Maui was a climate change skeptic, just like David Leggett's. He reportedly questioned the science that connected climate change to extreme weather events, and this quickly earned some criticism from, from prominent Democrats in Washington. Democratic Congresswoman Susan um, Banamaki said, Quote, we cannot stand by and tolerate the suppression, censorship, and manipulation of climate science. End quote. You know, it, it wasn't just her. It was 89 other Democratic lawmakers as well that accused the president of destabilizing, politicizing, and undermining the trust in this, in this key scientific process. They went on to say, quote, we implore you to preserve the integrity of our nation's premier climate science report and work with us to support federal science agencies. End quote. We know that this national climate assessment is already behind due to a delay. The Hill just reported, thehill.com reports, quote, The fifth national climate assessment is already behind schedule following a delay in selecting the hundreds of scientists necessary to draft chapters on their various issues of expertise. The report, which is due every four years, is already expected to land in 2023 instead of 2022. Howard Crystal, a senior attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity, said, quote, Refusing to take this, refusing to take the basic steps to, pre to prepare the next climate assessment is outrageous and dangerous. We can't prepare for the droughts, floods, fires, and hurricanes to come unless we are under unless we understand how climate change is affecting our country. Congress set a strict four-year time four-year timetable for these climate science 
reports precisely because timely information related to climate change is so important and the agency must move forward to comply. End quote. We also know that reportedly in 2017, the Trump administration disbanded the Obama-era committee that was, cre- that was created to help assist, quote, in the creation of the 2018 Fourth National Climate Assessment. The report was later released the day after Thanksgiving, end quote. So, yes, it is obvious that the president has some political animosity towards former President Barack Obama. Yes, that is obvious. But that should not affect the way the policy works, the way policy works under this administration. But unfortunately, it does, and it has. And now that these climate change skeptics, according to the Washington Post, will be in charge of crafting and producing the fifth national climate assessment. That's unsettling. That's alarming. Oh, also, did you hear what the Trump administration did last week? Again, here's reporting from The Hill. Quote, the White House is appointing David Leggett, a top administration official with a history of questioning humans' influence on global warming to the committee responsible for selecting the National Medal of Science winners. Leggett joined the administration in September and now serves as the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Commerce, uh, excuse me, of Commerce for Observation and Prediction. Previously an Previously an academic at the University of Delaware, Legates has a long history of questioning humans' influence on global warming. End quote. While the Trump administration is having um, installing, while the Trump administration is just installing climate skeptics in high-level scientific federal agencies, the rest of the world is accepting and learning more about the threat of climate change. I mean, just last week, New Zealand, New Zealand declared a climate emergency. Uh, this was New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern speaking just last week. I move government notice of motion number one in my name regarding a declaration of a climate emergency. Mr. Speaker, I think the first and most important point to make is that this is a declaration based on science. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the preeminent scientific body in the world on this matter, has determined that in order to avoid a situation, a disastrous 1.5 degrees Celsius rise in global temperatures and beyond, a rise that would see increased risk to human health and livelihood, civil unrest, mass drought, mass disease, loss of lands and homes, increased fires, increased tropical storms, mass human displacement and globally exhausted resources, then we must act with urgency, Mr Speaker, to ensure global emissions fall to net zero by 2050. Mr Speaker, this declaration is an acknowledgement of the next generation, an acknowledgement of the burden that they will carry if we do not get this right and if we do not take action now. Importantly, this is a declaration that records the importance and formal importance of our intent as a nation and our intent on the global stage. As a government, we are also announcing the Carbon Neutral Government Programme that requires government organisations to be carbon neutral by 2025. We must... We 
must get our own house in order? How can we stand and take a leadership position amongst the private sector unless we take the same action that we expect of them? But I encourage every member of this house to take the issue of climate change with the utter seriousness that it deserves. Vote in favour of this declaration today. Be on the right side of history. Be part of the solution we must collectively deliver for the next generation. Vote in favor of this declaration today. Be on the right side of history. Be part of this solution we must collectively deliver for the next generation. Once again, that was Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, advocating for climate change that would declare climate, advocating for a declaration um, that would declare climate change an emergency. And it did pass. The vote was 76 to 43. Many other nations have also done the same. Japan just declared a climate emergency last month. Reuters.com reports, quote, Jap Japanese lawmakers on Thursday declared a climate emergency in a symbolic vote aimed at increasing pressure for action to combat global warming after the government last month committed, committed to a firm timetable for net zero emissions, end quote. The United Nations has just said that this year, 2020, was one of the hottest years ever recorded. Last week, CNN reported, quote, we're at a turning point on climate change, but most countries are still choosing fossil fuels over clean energy, according to a report, end quote. Also, a new study published by the Lancet Countdown says that climate change has a deep impact on the health of human beings. This week on Tuesday, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released a report um, that said that the Arctic wildfires are linked to warming temperatures. The report also said that this year's annual land surface air temperature was the, was the second highest since 1900. That's according to reporting from The Hill. And NOAA's report also said that sea ice loss this year was particularly high towards the end of the summer, reaching the second lowest record in the past 42 years. Well, just this week, NOAA produced their annual Arctic report. Um, that said, in part, greenhouse gas emissions are changing the Arctic into, quote, an effective and entirely different climate, end quote. Also, NOAA said that the number of, that said that November of this year, November this year, 2020, was the fourth hottest month and year on record. Earlier this week, um, USA Today reported that many states are unprepared for the inevitable exacerbation of climate change. Meanwhile, the Trump administration has rolled back more than 125 environmental protections. Why not? We're perfectly fine, right? Nothing's going on. Environmentalist and climate change activist Dr. Twyla Dell joins me next. Hey, Google. More than 100 billion words are translated every day. Thank you very much for your help. Words about food. Words about friendship. About sport. About belief. About fear. Words that can hurt and sometimes divide. But every day, 
the most translated words in the world are how are you thank you and i love you Joining me now once again for the interview is Dr. Twyla Dell. She is an environmentalist and she is also a climate change activist. Dr. Dell, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So my first question to you is, uh, the Trump administration has rolled back more than 125 environmental protections. Uh, most recently, the Alaska Tungus National Forest now making logging permissible. Also, others have been rolled back in the recent weeks. How do we begin to uh, sort of reconstruct the damage in terms of long-term environmental effects? I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> uh, it's going to take massive political and financial uh, work to begin to reverse those things. It's like trying to stop the tide from turning mm -hmm. and it will be a long time to recover. Mm. Um, earlier this week, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released their annual Arctic report. Um, and one of the things that they indicated was that greenhouse gas emissions are changing um, the Arctic into, quote, an entirely different climate. Um, what's your perspective on that news? Well, interesting you should mention that. I got a, a uh, report this morning showing the ice breaking up in that area and they're mm -hmm. they're just desperate to stop it mm. absolutely desperate and that it shows that the arctic is suffering more climate change faster than the rest of the world and that is really scary because we have to have the ice to make the planet work it's the refrigerator mm. and once that ice melts there is no refreezing it's not as if you can plug it back in and all the ice comes back we need every bit of that ice in order to live the kind of life we do. The more that melts, the hotter we get. And we'll have more and more days at 110, 115, even 120. These mm. are not heard of across Europe, across the United States, and certainly even some of those temperatures up there. So that is a very scary piece of information. I'm glad you brought it up. The more we can do to keep the ice from melting, and what I always say is, come on, let's go. The ice is melting. Let's make the changes we need to melt, make. As you know, if you put an ice cube out on a sidewalk, it hot sidewalk, it's going to melt. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. Mm. What we can do instead, and you know that I'm a champion of, is stop burning gasoline. Yeah. We are the biggest polluter of burning gasoline than anything else we do. And by the way, I want to show you my new book, uh -huh. Gasoline The Gasoline Diet. Diet. That is now out. It's available on Amazon. It's a workbook and it will show you how to take uh, to, to uh, use the the uh, pages and back to keep track. And this is a pencil and paper idea. But who doesn't use that from time to time? But we have mm -hmm. to start somewhere. Every gallon that we burn leaves behind 20 pounds of carbon dioxide every mile that we drive leaves behind a pound of carbon dioxide. So mm. we don't see that ash. And so we don't think it's there. But what if every mile we drove left behind a pound of butter, for instance, mm -hmm. and you drive another mile and there'd be another pound of butter. I don't know if it comes packaged or it comes melting onto the 
to the pavement, but that would get our attention. The fact that we can't see it, that we can't see the mountain of ash we're building up if we park that in our driveway every year, seven, eight tons, depending on how much we drive, then that would get our attention. Mm. And so we have to realize that's happening. And the biggest, absolutely biggest change we can make is to get out of internal combustion engines and get into electric cars. Mm. We have a chance to do that now and make a difference that in a few years from now, it won't make any difference. And we're, we're uh, selling about one and a half percent electric cars to internal combustion. We have, um, we're, we're selling about 42,000 cars a day in the United States. And so one and a half percent of that is maybe 6,000 electric cars. We have to reverse that somehow in the next five to 10 years. Hmm. Um, earlier this week, the USA Today reported that many states are unprepared for the inevitable um, exacerbation of climate change. Um, what can be done about that in terms of um, preparing for the future? Well, up until now, we have allowed the powers over our heads to make the decisions. And that is a national government, state government uh, carried out at the county level and big corporations. We have assumed that they are going to do the work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. What is becoming obvious and should become obvious to everyone is that it is going to happen at the street level. Mm -hmm. You and I are going to stop burning gasoline as fast as we can. That's the biggest thing we can do. Hmm. Nothing else that you do, recycling cans, recycling paper, recycling anything, insulating your uh, eaves in your house, your attic, those are all good. Uh, changing light bulbs, everything we're doing is good, but it doesn't have the impact of stopping leaving behind a pound of CO2 for every mile we drive. Hmm. Um what, what exactly do you make of the um, Environmental Protection Agency uh, just earlier this week refusing to toughen um, air pollution standards? Well, given the administration and place in the EPA, mm -hmm. I wouldn't give that too much credence. Uh, you know, it's part scientific and mostly political. And I'm hoping when the Biden administration gets in, they will put someone in there who has the good sense to tighten air pollution rules because that is the culprit. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of the Biden administration, um, earlier, just, just last month, they, now, uh, they, they nominated, um, excuse me, they nominated John Kerry as their climate czar. Um, do you have confidence in what they will do in sort of bringing back these environmental protections that the Trump administration is just eradicating? Do you have, do you have, do you have faith that they'll be more serious on climate change? Absolutely. It has been pushed to the side far too long. And in the background of the Trump administration, uh, it, the, uh, the regulations have been loosened and changed and done away with. And we can't do that. Yeah. And we have children. I started this whole thing back in my whole campaign back in the 90s because I had two boys in high school mm -hmm. and I had worked at EPA and I offered the environmental leadership program for six years. And I've done everything I know how to do to bring people's attention to the fact that we must act now. Mm -hmm. So yes, it will change as much as, it, and I like John Kerry. I think he'll do a great job. He's a long distance runner politically. He goes clear mm -hmm. back to the Vietnam War. 
and uh, he will be a presence, a much needed presence and a very vocal one, a very eloquent one. Reportedly, November of this year was the hottest year on record. The National Oceanic and, Atmos and Atmospheric Administration said that uh, this November was the fourth hottest year, um, uh, the, fourth, the fourth hottest month and year on record. Um, how does that make you feel? And what does that, what does that tell us as people who are uh, absorbing this news? Well, if you look at the map, every one of us has suffered some kind of, of uh, beating by the climate change. You look at all of the storms that come in off the Atlantic, they had more than 30 this year. That mm -hmm. be has, has become the new norm. You look at California burning, people moving out of California. Yeah. Uh, and here in the Midwest, everything seems to be fine. I'm in Kansas City, but we are slowly drying out. We are drying out. We have less rain, we have less snow. And while we're all just so happy, we have these warm sunny days in December, that's not mm -hmm. a good sign. That's a bad sign. Yeah. We need snow, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, the weather is changing and this is the way the planet is talking to us. It talks through its weather. Mm -hmm. It talks and says, I, I just can't help it. I'm sorry, but I'm gonna <laughs> just throw these storms in your direction because of what you're doing to me. And yeah. I'm gonna dry you out here. Kansas City is number four on a list of 25 cities most likely to be damaged by change. In the mm. Midwest, that means all the other cities around are the same. Minneapolis is also in the top five. And uh, if, you, if you think that the climate isn't talking to us in its language, you're absolutely wrong. And we need to learn to speak to, learn to speak that language and change our ways because it's just whipping us up, whipping our behinds to tell us that this is the way it's going. And again, at the street level, to answer that language, the most important thing we can do is to stop burning gasoline. Hmm. Uh, speaking of the drought in, in inter-American cities and all over the world, are you concerned or is it is it inevitable that we will have a massive climate migration in terms of people moving to different parts of the country and different parts of the world because their, their parts are just getting destroyed by climate change? Yeah, what do you think? After Let's, you've been yeah. through a <laughs> dozen hurricanes, <laughs> there must be a better place to live. Or after, after the ocean comes in and occupies the first floor of your house yeah. for the third time, yeah, it's time for me to move. And in fact, when I was watching some coverage of some Gulf storms, I heard two different residents say, you know, I've been through this so many times, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm going north. Mm -hmm. I happen to live north of the Gulf. So mm -hmm. yes, people are going to move inland from both coasts in order to find a better place because we look like we're tranquil. Now we could get uh, uh, cyclones more increasingly and we do get our share, but we haven't had a big one in a while. But just <clears throat> remember, we are, we are drying out. It's a slow process and it doesn't show up the way storms and fires do but we are drying out. So the more people who come here, the less water there is available. There's no place on the planet that's safe, really. And, mm -hmm. and if somebody tells you that, that is an illusion. <laughs>
Uh, this week, the United Nations released a report um, indicating that the world's affluent population needs to reduce their carbon footprint by a factor of 30 to slow climate change. Um, I just want to ask, it, do you do do you agree with that study? And could you could you please explain that study in layman's terms? Uh, I don't. I'm not acquainted with the study, but I certainly mm -hmm. do agree with it. We have to do everything. Everything. Do I need to spell that out? We are in a state of emergency. Mm -hmm. And if we care about our children and our grandchildren, and you're young enough, you have 40, 50 more years to live, mm -hmm. you don't want to live in that world. And yeah. it starts at the street level. Once again, my guest is Dr. Twyla Dell. She is the author of many books, including Feeling Climate Change, How We Created Climate Change, How We how we created climate change one feel at a time. And also her most recent book, which you can go pick up now on Amazon, as she just said, it's called The Gasoline Diet. Dr. Dell, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremiah. Once again, that was my interview with Dr. Twyla Dell. Um, after the interview, she sent me this email. She said, this is something she forgot to say in the show. She said, quote, the promotion of John Kerry to cabinet level gives environmental concerns real power. Most people may not realize that the Environmental Protection Agency is not a cabinet level post. It is an agency because when it was created back in 1970, too many people didn't want, quote, one, any environmental regulations, and two, didn't want corporate interests curtailed by an environmental regulations. So it has remained a national agency tied to tied to administering programs through the 50 states. Putting John Kerry on the cabinet means we can talk to others around the world at, at a cabinet level about planetary environmental issues and can negotiate with them across depart departmental departmental levels, uh, excuse me, departmental lines to get things done. End quote. Uh, once again, that was an email that she sent me in, in regards to what she forgot to say on the show. Uh, once again, just a remarkable interview with Dr. Twyla Dell. All right, we've got much more to get to tonight. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Oh, I wanted to ask you. Uh, Liz and I are going to do some work around the house. Do you know any good contractors? I might. Oh, that's great. Can you check their qualifications? Make sure they have great reviews and research the average price for the job. Oh, and book them on Wednesday. Actually, make it Friday. But when the water... You can't expect your neighbors to do everything HomeAdvisor can. So for a better way to get home projects done right, just ask HomeAdvisor. Yesterday, this was the headline at the Washington Post, quote, New Mexico activates crisis care standards for hospitals overwhelmed by COVID. End quote. On Thursday, New Mexico Governor Michelle Luan Grissom ordered that the ordered that non-essential surgeries be banned because of the strain on hospitals because of that current strain on hospitals from the coronavirus. Yesterday, New Mexico announced that schools will close until after the winter break. Reportedly, schools under hybrid models will reopen on January 18th of next year. The goal is to avoid the spread of the coronavirus until after the holiday. The goal is to avoid the spread of the coronavirus after the holiday break. Also, in New Mexico, as they await for their coronavirus vaccine, they are encouraging more people to get tested. The New Mexico Secretary of Human Services said, quote, Our goal of testing in the state is to have accurate, accessible, timely testing. End quote. Today in Tennessee, they reported 6,691 new coronavirus cases and 73 deaths. Reportedly, this is the worst week in the state in terms of new cases and deaths. 
in Cleveland, Tennessee, they have hit 99% ICU capacity due to the coronavirus pandemic. One doctor saying, quote, as local cases have increased, there have been times our COVID units were at capacity earlier in the year. We developed an emergency surge plan and we have been preparing for a surge for several months now. This plan includes using additional space in the facility to accommodate the needs if necessary. End quote. In Oregon today, they recorded 1,440 new coronavirus cases and 13 deaths. Today in Michigan, they recorded 4,486 new coronavirus cases and 206 deaths. In Pennsylvania today, it does look like they are appearing to reach that, that apex that I've been talking about for so long on this show. Today, Pennsylvania reported 11,084 new coronavirus cases, bringing the statewide case count to 481,118. There are currently 5,688. There are currently 5,688 people in the hospital right now with the coronavirus in Pennsylvania. Of that number, 1,151 are in the ICU. Governor Tom Wolf has, yes, Governor Tom Wolf has just banned indoor dining, gyms, and school sports. A field response team will now assist in enforcing Pennsylvania's new coronavirus guidelines after multiple businesses are saying that they will deliberately defy these orders. In New York, we have just learned that they are shutting down restaurants again. We have also learned that 74% of New York's COVID-19 spread is a result of many at-home gatherings. Right now, more than 5,000 New Yorkers are hospitalized, which is reportedly the most since May of this year. Today in Minnesota, they recorded 4,447 new coronavirus cases and 67 deaths. This was the headline at the Star Tribune today out of Minnesota. Quote, Minnesota trending to a grim holiday milestone in COVID-19 deaths. End quote. Minnesota's Governor Tim Walz is now considering a lockdown, but more than 100 business more than 100 business owners in the state are saying that they will reopen anyway. They will defy the governor's orders. The same thing is happening in Pennsylvania. The United States is continuing to report more than 3,000 coronavirus deaths a day, and well over 200,000 coronavirus cases. Yesterday, the Trump administration pressured the FDA director to approve the vaccine or submit his resignation. I feel that this is enraging because this will sow more doubt into the public um, that this decision was based off of political pressure. Well, yesterday, the FDA did approve the vaccine within hours of that political pressure from the president of the United States. We reached out to Dr. Anna Stratus about this, and Dr. Stratus said that she views this as sort of political posturing by the Trump administration. Um, but today, the FDA did say, the FDA um, released a statement, the FDA released a video with the FDA director, Stephen Hahn, uh, Stephen Hahn, and in that statement, they said that this decision was based off science and data. Let me be clear. Efficiency does not mean any cutting of corners. Medical products are still undergoing rigorous study and clinical trials. Important safety checks remain in place. This vaccine met the FDA's rigorous standards for quality, safety and efficacy. Science and data guided the FDA's decision. We worked quickly based on the urgency of this pandemic, not because of any other external pressure. This decision was based on the strongest scientific integrity, and I am so proud of the work that our career scientists have done. 
Once again, that was FDA Director Stephen Hahn, Stephen Hahn, speaking about the approval of the coronavirus vaccine. He indicated that there was no political pressure. This was, and this, there was no outside pressure that forced them to make this decision tonight. That forced them to make that decision last night. Uh, but they said they they are assuring the, they are assuring the public that yes, this decision was based on science and data. Regardless of what you may think of, this decision was based on science and data. Once again, FDA Director Stefan Hahn uh, speaking about the approval of the vaccine. Earlier this week, Dr. Anthony Fauci said, quote, For the first time in more than 30 years, I'm not spending the Christmas holidays with my daughters. End quote. Being that it's just disastrous right now, given the, given the, given essentially the, 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 the exponential increase in coronavirus cases that we are experiencing right now from Thanksgiving, and that is going to continue into the holidays. Other, other health experts are warning that Christmas, including Dr. Fauci, warning that the Christmas surge may be worse than the Thanksgiving surge. More than 15 million Americans have contracted the coronavirus. More than 104,000 people are hospitalized tonight. And more than 296,000 of our fellow Americans are dead. It's going to be a long winter. Stay safe. Wear your mask. Hang in there. Please do not travel this Christmas. Please stay home. Please just communicate over Zoom. I mean, we live in the modern age, the modern era of technology. You have Zoom, you have FaceTime, Instagram, all these other (laughs) sort of technological connecting apps where you can speak with your family members. Please just stay home. Please stay safe. More than 15 million Americans have contracted the coronavirus. It does appear that we are heading towards 300,000 Americans dead from the coronavirus. More than 104,000 people are in the hospital tonight. <sighs> Hang in there. We have much more ahead tonight. Stay with us. At a time when we're asked to sacrifice, we step up to do our part on the home front, on the front lines, to lend a helping hand and hold each other up. We are resilient, vigilant, and we'll get through this because we're better together, even if we're a little farther apart. Welcome back. Reporter Daniel Gonzalez reports at Arizona Republic about 620 about at the Arizona Republic about 628 parents of separated migrant children that are still missing. So reportedly, quote, 628 parents of separated children are still missing. Here's why immigrant advocates can't find them. End quote. So Daniel Gonzalez wrote this article at Arizona at the Arizona Republic, and then USA Today picked it up. Here is that reporting. Quote. Rebecca Sanchez-Raldo, a Guatemalan lawyer and human rights defender, set out recently on a seemingly impossible task, locating the missing father of a four-year-old separated in 2017 at the Texas border under the Trump administration's notorious family separation policy. Sanchez-Raldo was trying to locate the father, an impoverished farm worker, to determine if he was still in contact with his daughter, who had remained in the U.S. with sponsors after he had been deported to Guatemala. But Sanchez Rado had very little information to go by. No address, no phone number, just the father's name and the moon in the, in the excuse me in the municipal in the new in the municipality where he was from. 
The municipality, however, was made up of dozens of small towns and villages. Sanchez Rado had no idea in which town the father lived, or even if he still lived there. Traveling there was also not easy. The municipality was located in a remote rural area in southern Guatemala that required driving several hours on a treacherous, on treacherous mountain roads. Nevertheless, twice, Sanchez Rado drove to the municipality from Guatemala City, the nation's capital, hoping to find information about the father from local government officials. But both times, Sanchez Rado arrived to find the municipal, the, the municipal offices were closed. Then, this immigration lawyer got lucky. She found a teacher who worked in one of the little towns. The teacher said, quote, yes, I know him. Sanchez Rado then telephoned then telephoned the father, but the call did not go well. Given the way he had been treated by the U.S. government, the father, quote, was very suspicious, and Sanchez Rado said, and Sanchez Rado said, the article goes on to say, quote, she, she, this immigration lawyer said, quote, the father was very dis, distrustful and very surprised that I had his name. It was very hard for him to fathom why somebody would be looking for him. Sanchez's experience um, tracking down the missing father in Guatemala shows some of the tremendous challenges immigrant advocates face trying to locate hundreds of parents that still have not been found. Those challenges include incomplete and outdated information about the parents provide, provided to immigrant advocates by the U.S. government, parents living in remote rural locations in Mexico and Central America, and parents suspicious of strangers trying to locate them years after the family separations have taken place. So the Trump administration's notorious separation pol uh, family separation policy is causing sort of a stir here with what immigrant advocates and immigrant lawyers and attorneys are trying to do here into reuniting these families. Well, if you recall, last week I reported, I believe this is actually, excuse me, this Wednesday I reported on our TJPS special report that the Trump administration has now provided that that has now provided those those documents and this contact information to immigrant attorneys. So hopefully this will um, be beneficial here. Um, but then again, they sat on this. They deliberately held this information when they knew and, and they told they told these immigrant advocates and attorneys that they did not have this information. Once again, 628 parents of separated children are still missing. Um, just a remarkable article written by Daniel Gonzalez at the Arizona Republic. Also, I believe this is picked up by USA Today. Today at Yahoo Finance, this was a report, this was a reporting, quote, immigrant immigration lawyer Carlos E. Sandoval informs immigrants that Trump administration executive orders are overruled by federal courts. The article continues, quote, in the recent weeks, there have been a series of federal court decisions overruling illegal executive orders promulgated by the Trump administration. Attorney Carl, attorney Carl, excuse me, attorney Carlos E. Sandoval explains that these decisions considered major, th these decisions are considered major victories for many immigrants whose legal stay in the United States depends on certain programs, end quote. So once again, reporting from, Yah from yahoofinance.com about this, Im this immigration lawyer essentially saying, hey guys, you're going to be all right because these programs will be overruled by federal judges and by federal courts. Just remarkable what the Trump administration is attempting to do in these final days. We have another TJPS special report on what the Trump administration is doing on two immigrants tomorrow. You are going to want to listen to that. Um, stay tuned. The last note is next. 
In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. Tonight, in one of the biggest disciplinary actions ever taken by the Army, 14 soldiers, including general officers, have either been fired or suspended at Fort Hood. Officials say they created an environment that contributed to sexual assault, sexual harassment, and even murder. In my 33 years of service, that was the biggest gut punch I've ever received. We've got a problem we got to fix. It comes after a review sparked by the brutal murder of Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen, who went missing in April, her remains found two months later. A fellow soldier, who later killed himself, believed to be involved in her death. Guillen's family alleged the soldier sexually harassed her. The panel interviewed hundreds of women and blasted the culture at the base, saying leadership created a permissive environment for sexual assault and sexual harassment. Guillen's family praised today's actions, but they say more needs to be done. We demand justice for our soldiers and justice for Vanessa Guillen and to respect our female soldiers who put their life at risk. The panel offered 70 recommendations to address these issues, and Congress has introduced the I Am Vanessa Guillen Act, which would make sexual harassment a punishable crime in the military. That was a report from NBC News earlier this week. Once again, 14 soldiers at least fired or suspended on the base of Fort Hood. Just remarkable news that we have learned this week um, as progress and change is now being done and, and is now being taken at that base. Uh, thank you so much for being with me on this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show today. I really appreciate it. Please join me on tomorrow's episode where the coronavirus pandemic will be at the top of the show. We really do need to be covering that more right now as the current situation is exacerbating, even as we now do have a new glimmer of hope with the new coronavirus vaccine. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Have a great day, and I'll see you tomorrow.